Hello, thank you for joining me. This is episode eight of Can I Borrow Your Mind? I hope you enjoy it. It's My guest this week is Tom Ballard. Um, you probably know Tom already, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him anyway. Um, he's a comedian. He's a great comedian. He writes a lot of political comedy. Um, you might have seen him. He hosted a show on the ABC called Tonightly. He was the host of Triple J Breakfast for years. Um, he's won a bunch of awards. He's been nominated for Best Show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, um, Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe, Best Show at the Edinburgh Fringe as well, which is... Yeah, they're pretty crazy achievements. Um, and like you can see why when you go see him live, he's just a he's he's just a brilliant comedian. Um, and I really love his material because it's pretty searing. Like he really goes for stuff in terms of like a social social message or political message that he's that he's putting out there. Um, he doesn't hold back, but he also doesn't forfeit any laughs in delivering that message. Like, it's all hilarious. Uh, it, he's got a podcast called Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, which is really good. Um, definitely listen to that. Uh, and he's, he's, I, I think he, he's very well-versed on politics. So we, we had a big conversation about politics. And I learned heaps in this chat, um, which is kind of the point of this podcast. I... Um, <laughs> I, you know, I set out with the goal of like borrowing smart people's minds and sort of, I don't know, harvesting their knowledge so that I can become a smarter person. And in this episode, that definitely happened. It was a lot of like me being like, what what do you mean by that, Tom? Like, or what, what's the history of that? And yeah, he explained things to me really well. And we had some laughs as well. Um, we talked about climate change. We talked about some bleak stuff, um, but we talked about some positive stuff as well and how the left in Australia can be better which i think is a really important thing um join your union that's like a big thing that i got out of this conversation so do that join your union straight after listening to this podcast listen to this podcast first that's the priority numero uno um but then then join your union um so yeah i i hope you enjoy it the intro music for this podcast is by silt they're a Melbourne band. Um, Tom has a great recommendation at the end of the episode, so check that out. If you want to know more about Tom Ballard, you can go to his website, tomballard.com.au, and you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff at Tom C. Ballard. Um, and with this podcast, uh, you know, if you think it's good, a really cool thing is if you rate it, give it a good rating, and also subscribe to it because you don't want to miss out any episodes, and share it, chuck it on your... Chuck it on your Insta story. Chuck it up there. You know, put it on Facebook. Tweet it. Give it a tweet. Um, email it to your friends. Email it to five of your closest friends with one of those chain messages that says, if you don't email this to five of your closest friends, then a demon will like come kill you or whatever. Remember those things from back in the day? Bring them back and use this podcast as a way of bringing those back. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy listening to this. I recorded this podcast on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people and their elders past, present and emerging. And I want to say that sovereignty was never ceded in Australia. Um, this is episode eight of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham, which is me. Um, and this week's guest, the brilliant Tom Ballard. See ya. Hello. Oh, there you go. You hey. Get to see my face. hey, how mate. are you? Good. How are you? 
Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. The last um, couple of weeks I've been, uh, you know, with COVID, like, I don't know about you, but I have like waves of like feeling shit and then feeling good. And I've been feeling Big good time. the last couple of weeks. How, what about oh, you? Great. How are you going? <laughs> I was a bit shit this last week. Really? Um, but fine. But yeah, as you say, waves that sort of come and go. It's weird, um, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, I've had some weeks this year where I've been the most like engaged and productive and like quite excited about the future more than ever, ever before. And then yeah, real, real low shit. Yeah. I think not being able to do stand up is actually, I don't think I realized um, how like cathartic stand up is for me. Yes. Until this year. Have you found that? Um, I don't know whether it's specifically stand up or just doing anything. <laughs> talking to people. people. Talking to people. I mean, the, the few times I've done gigs, I did, I did Spicks and Specs, did a taping of Specs on the weekend. And that was, it was fucking lovely. It was really lovely mm. to just be around people, being stupid, laughing. Yeah. Creating something. And yeah. Fun. Yes, yeah. Quite good. But yes, it has increased my appreciation for. The job because I don't know. After a while, you, sometimes you get a bit burnt out, or you think, "What's the point of all this?" And I'm sick of it. And I want to do something else in my life, and then um, it all gets taken away from you. To go, oh yeah, that's that's really good. That stupid job that we have. Totally, yeah. What do you think about when when you think about like quitting and doing something else? Do you mean outside of the arts entirely, or? Uh, no, well, sometimes it's, it's a move within the arts. Like, you know, I started writing this play and I'd really like to do more of that. I really love theater and would, would like to work in that area or writing scripted stuff, um, for, for TV or some, just something else. Um, and then other times I feel like the world's on fire and everything's <laughs> fucked and surely I should be doing something more to help people and, and be more kind of active and, uh, maybe go back to uni. <laughs> I'm really glad you mentioned that. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you. Um, mm. This is uh, this. Uh, I think we might disagree on this because I've heard you on your podcast. Like I'm a six year old, which I really like. Um, I've heard you in one episode of that um, saying something similar to this, where you're saying you sort of almost feel guilty that you pour your energy into art um, because you're you're worried that that's not really a tangible way of changing the world. Um, I disagree. I think mm-hmm. that like, I think that people seeing your art, um, I think lately I've been thinking heaps about how the world could change. Cause I guess the more fucked it gets, the more that enters your mind. <laughs> but, um, one of the things I've been thinking and talking to people about recently is like, at, at some point, unless you're going to fucking, unless you're going to kill all the psycho right-wing people, you need to change people's minds about things, right? To a certain extent. And I, I actually do think that art is one of the best ways to do that. Like I reckon um, I saw your show enough a couple of years ago um, in the Melbourne town hall. And I reckon like if there were people that were at that show that were more right-wing than you, I think it would have affected them. And I don't think it would change them immediately. I would liken it to, you know, in stand-up comedy when you're trying to get people to come see your show, right? And if they see a poster of you, 
that's probably not enough. They're probably not going to see the poster, think that it's cool artwork and then go to your show. But they might see that poster and then subconsciously they'll be like, that's a cool poster. And then three days later they hear you on the radio and then they connect it to that and they're like, oh yeah. And then another time they see you do a little spot and then these things add up and then they're like, fuck it, I'm going to buy a ticket to the show. I think that art can be a component of changing people's minds. And I reckon... I mean, there's no way of knowing whether that's a thing that's happening or not, but I just feel like that would be a thing that's happening. Do you not think that's happening or what do you reckon? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's certainly a good argument that, that yes, lots of arts and cre- creative activity, particularly politically engaged stuff can make people reconsider things and think about things differently and see things from different points of view. I mean, I did a show a couple of years back about Australia's refugee policy and there were definitely people who let me know that, 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 seeing that show uh, move them in some way or, or made them think about that, that issue from a different angle. But that's kind of a very low impact one-to-one kind of vibe. And, and even if people change their minds to agree with you, if no action comes out of that, it's also still a little bit impotent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think that political art, I still love political art and I still love, being artistic and creative in some way, that's, that's something that I enjoy doing. And I think we only get one life. So I should, you know, I, I do keep doing that because I enjoy doing it and pursuing something artistic and creative because you enjoy doing it. It makes other people happy is a worthwhile thing. But I, I just think the political impact of art and artist is sometimes overstated or at the very least, I think there are some very incredible artists who also walk the walk and have spent time and energy and money and sacrifice career opportunities dedicating themselves to, you know, organizing and actually advancing political causes mm. um, that I would like to be more like, I suppose. Yeah. Fonda, I don't know if you know much about Jane, reading about Jane Fonda recently for some reason. You know, I mean, she's done a bunch of, of you know, fun, dumb comedies and cool movies, but like she you know, during the Vietnam war, she went over there. She like sacrificed her kind of career or at least was like really despised um, uh, at the time being a public face of the anti-war movement. Um, and, uh, you know, you see something like that and it's, that's quite, um, quite inspiring. And I guess, I just also think that celebrities or people in the public eye get a huge amount of credit for maybe tweeting the right mm. thing or doing something symbolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, whereas I would argue that people from like the trade union movement or human rights lawyers or people who, who spend every fucking waking moment fighting, fighting for better things. There. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Runs on the board. <laughs> absolutely. I agree with that. No, definitely. And yeah, in some ways that stuff is more worthy and it's more of a sacrifice, but you're good at doing comedy. So, you, and like, and also some people <laughs> well, would despise you. Oh, some, people despise me now. That's exactly. True. Some people would despise you when they see, you know, your gala set about boat people or whatever. Like they're gonna, they're gonna be like, "Fuck this guy!" Like, "Fuck this, this, guy. this prick." And um, also, there's yeah, there's. I just think there's like a million ways. There's there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, to use a weird mm. expression. Um, but like, I think as I don't know. I guess I'm trying to come to terms with it because I really want to um, do something valuable for the world. And I, when I started doing stand up, I, I did actually like have this 
like romantic notion that um, if I get a big enough following and then I'm like doing material that is inspiring people to change their views, then that is going to make a big impact in the world. And maybe that's absolutely ridiculous. Even as, even as I say no, it, even as I say it, I sound like a fucking idiot and maybe that's just not how it works, but yeah. Yeah. But I'd also say that the, I think the less of a problem for the left or progressive people is getting people to agree with us. I, I am still firmly of the belief despite all the evidence um, that most Australians are left-wing, or at least Australia is a far more left-wing country than electoral results would suggest or the way the media paints us. Oh. Um, and I actually think that the, the big problem with left, the left is that we, we're just not organised enough and we don't do enough stuff about the things that we, we believe in or we feel that we're powerless to do so. Um, and that's kind of baked into being left-wing because you know, ultimately left-wing, uh, uh, more attractive to the poor, the powerless, working-class people. Um, that's what it's kind of all about. So I think people attracted to left-wing ideas often uh, aren't the ones in power and are going up against some pretty big, powerful forces. So, um, you know, I'm under no illusion that many people coming to a Tom Ballard show are, are um, they may not be as, as far to the left as me, but they're probably not... Um, in the IPA or anything, and they're not going to be <laughs> convinced that uh, capitalism is evil through my powerful punchlines. Yeah, but you okay. keep you doing you doing you, Lewis. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna fucking change the world, isn't it? Comedy, I'm sure of it. <laughs> um, what? Okay, can you go into a little bit more detail about what the left needs to do, in your opinion? <laughs> I feel like you. I feel like. Um, I feel like because I've been listening to your podcast quite a lot and there's you, you, you speak to a lot of people that I would say a pretty expert level knowledge about politics and I don't know much about politics. Um, and throughout that, I guess you've learnt heaps of stuff and there's, uh, there's lots of different ideas on your podcast about how the left could be better. What do you think? Oh, man. Um, look, I think a major weakness for left-wing people right now is just how weak the union movement is and how much unionism has been decimated and, and, and has declined. Um, and it's kind of, think it's, I think it's hard for, for people like our age to really appreciate how much, how different things were in say the 1970s. Yeah. When, you know, something like 50% of the workforce was, was in a union and the trade union movement was extremely powerful and mm -hmm. uh, was winning a lot of victories for working class people, not just in the workplace, but like socially as well. Like you actually had unions going on strike in solidarity with an environmental cause or, ref you know, refusing to work on a, a university campus because they had a discriminatory policy for queer people or the radicalism of like the Mardi, the original, the first Mardi Gras. Um, and union movements standing in solidarity with that. And, you know, that's, there's a million different factors why that is. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Um, I think it has something to do with the Hawke-Keating Hawk government kind of taming the labor movement somewhat. So that, um, so are, are that, were they the government like sort of that were in at the same time as like Thatcher in the UK and when, when the whole like neoliberal thing was happening? Is that? 
I don't know yeah, much yeah, about Hawk, this. Sure, sure. Yeah, Hawk gets in in 1983, uh, and Keating later takes over, and they're, they're in power for 13 years until 1996. And Bob Hawke was the old head of the ACTU, the, the Council of Trade Unions, and they created the Accord, the Prices and Income Accord, at the start of their term, which was basically about getting the union movement to strike less and demand smaller mm. wage increases in return for some good stuff like Medicare and superannuation, this kind of social wage idea. And I guess people on the left now, or some people on the left now would say Medicare and superannuation were good, but they shouldn't have come at the cost of fucking over the workers movement and and the union decline over those 13 years is pretty substantial. Uh, Keating cut the income tax rate and company tax corporatized a lot of things sold off so much that the privatization craze began under those guys. So, you know, you do have this unique situation in, in Australia, whereas in the UK and the U S right wing people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were doing all this neoliberalism thing in Australia. It was kind of being shepherded in by the center left party, the, mm. the ALP. So, and, and now, you know, the, the nature of the workforce, everything's so casualized and labor hire companies mean that people don't have the same job for ages and they have shit conditions and we're all kind of atomized and not inclined to join a union or recognize collective power. I think that goes a long way to explaining why things are so fucked up. Um, and some would argue that there's this kind of disconnection now between say the people who run unions, the union bureaucracy, or the relationship between ordinary workers and, mm. and the ALP. Um, now I'm a member of the Greens and I like the Greens, but a big problem with the Greens is they don't, quite have a lot of class politics going on or at least they are perceived to be and in reality are often kind of removed from workers struggles and are often you know you you see them becoming a threat in traditional blue ribbon seats so you so it's much more of a uh, middle to upper professional class kind of demographic Mm -hmm. as opposed to working class people um now i've I've no idea how to fix this I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I'm just Why? a comedian. That's a good thing. Whenever you're politically involved as a comedian, yeah. if you don't know the answer, it's too hard to go. <laughs> yeah. That's not my job. I'm here to make you laugh. Fuck I'm off. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. Well, then why? This is like, uh, you know, this might be a bit of a personal question or whatever, but um, I know you've uh, you've spoken to my sister. She's like a revolutionary socialist. Um, mm. And... I, this is sort of, I don't know, maybe I, I feel like I'm channeling her a little bit in this question, but why, if, if the Greens aren't there for the workers, like you're saying, they, they aren't, and, and for class struggle, why settle and why be a member of them? Um, why, not, why not be a revolutionary socialist and fight for the overthrowing of capitalism as a whole? <laughs> <laughs> because you think it's unrealistic or what? what? I mean, that's a pretty well, fair thing if that is the reason i don't know where i stand on this but i want to know where you stand um i'm very lazy too it seems like a lot of effort you gotta build barricades and guillotines and stuff that's true i mean yes i mean i've ended up in this in this area where i'd say i was a socialist and and i think of a democratic socialist as opposed to a revolutionary one because um it is very hard for me to either see a realistic path to a successful revolutionary uh, revolution that that kind of does everything that we need to do in terms of the massive projects that are involved in 
meeting the climate, you know, climate challenge or the huge complicated bureaucracy of making sure unemployed people don't starve. And mm. like, I think the state as it is constituted while yes, might be compromised by capitalism does a lot of good things. And I think there's been examples of previous governments democratically elected governments who have made things better for working class people. And if that's what you really care about, then I think, you know, organizing to get a big democratic majority to do more of that stuff is the way to go. Now, I don't know, the revolutionary socialist argument is getting more and more appealing when (laughs) the Corbyn project dies, when Mm. the Sanders project fails and when there's absolutely no sign of the ALP rediscovering its, leftism anytime soon Mm -hmm. especially Um, when 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 coal seems to be such an urgent thing that we stop you know using and 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 the labor party's still just like no it's all good (laughs) it's good though yeah i guess is the way to go um yeah look and you know i guess you think more and more about different ways that democracy can happen and and outside of the parliament one would think a good way to get some wins for the left would be the union movement and then the union movement sort of so cowed. I mean, the fact that like university staff aren't striking right now, I don't, I don't know when else you would possibly, and that's, that's no, I don't know the details of the NTEU and how it works. And I'm sure there are a lot, there are a few members who are, who are advocating mm-hmm. for strike action and stuff, but I just think fucking hell, if you don't do it now, then what's, what's what's going on there because that, yeah. that 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 sector has been attacked it's been brutally attacked um on ideological grounds i would argue by this government so uh yeah Do you, so <laughs> <laughs> fuck i'm depressing myself no no I, i've <laughs> had this problem moment, right? <laughs> and at the end i know there's gonna be this end bit like the, the at the moment, all the book is just, you know, writing out all the problems and how fucked everything is. And there's going to be this end bit where I'm, I'm supposed to say, <laughs> what happens now? Yeah, I was watching the, there's a, like a new David Attenborough documentary about climate change. And mm. it's similar. It's just like depressing for an hour. And then in the last 20 minutes, he like sort of says how we could fix it. But it's just like... I don't know, man. I don't see that happening. <laughs> it's like a documentary about the end of the world, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what's happening? What's happening with the universities? Sorry, I don't know what's going on there at the moment. I'm so I'm not I'm not aware enough of things. That no, it's fine. Anyone who checks out of the news at this point, I'm like, I absolutely <laughs> get it. Why would yeah. you? Yeah. You know, it's 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 brutal. Well, I mean, there has been a long-standing attack on higher education from, again, both sides of politics, right? So it was a Labour government. During Hawke-Keating, they introduced HEX. So, so university was free. Uh, it, was, it came at no cost to the student because we all agreed public education is a good thing. And society benefits if we have people going to university, learning stuff, uh, res- if universities research, that's the key to innovation. That's how we make everything better. And then, you know, to be fair, there were more people wanting to go to university and so the university, the sector needs to be expanded. And rather than tax rich people more or tax wealth or perhaps borrow money, uh, you know, do all these other kind of crazy left-wing ideas, <laughs> the Hawke-Keating goes, no, no, because if you go to university, you're probably going to earn more money later on. You, the individual student, should have to take out a student loan and pay back 
money over time. And it started out being very cheap. It was $1,800 a year per student. Um, and then, hey, what do you know? The loans just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Students have to pay more and more of the cost of the, of the, uh, of the course. And just slowly, this idea of public investment in higher education is, is hacked away, both in the university sector and in um, uh, vocational training too, like TAFE. Anyway, so that's been happening for, for a couple of decades. And now uh, COVID hits, uh, the government, this, the right-wing government doesn't like universities because it's full of Marxists and people studying the humanities, which, which we cannot allow. And so they specifically changed the rules so that public universities can't access JobKeeper. Private universities could. Uh, they, so, that, so that just means that universities are just cutting staff all over the place. Yeah. Universities were also sort of turned into corporations around the time of HEX as well. So that you've got these vice chancellors who are on literally more money than the prime minister, one and a half million dollars a year, while the workforce is extremely casualized and fucked over. There's lots of people who work at universities who are sort of living below the poverty line. So universities across the board have been uh, firing staff, um, closing down, um, uh, campuses in some cases uh, and of course they've been buckled by the fact that huge amounts of their money comes from international students once you close the borders then they're just basically um, bankrupt um, so that's massive and then also you've got this government introducing their way to get out of this is to make it more expensive for students to mm-hmm. study courses that they think aren't going to result in jobs so to the point where humanities and law courses are like twice as expensive as, yeah. they, as they were previously. So now it's like, now it's not, you should pay for your uni degree because you'll later earn more money. Now it's, you should pay more money for a humanities course because it's not going to get you a job. And the, the taxpayer and the rest of society has no great obligation mm. to you to study something uh, that might, I don't know, make you, critically think about the way that our society works um, and uh, we should punish financially punish students who don't study things that we think that they should study. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't give a fuck. I dropped yeah. out of a law degree after six weeks. I got no student debt. Yeah. You know, fuck yeah, you, but, but, but yeah. I give a fuck. Like I really, I would actually quite like to do an arts degree. Um, to learn more about the world, but you know, you can't. And I think this, this other scary thing about that is like the more expensive you make those courses, then the less um, sort of diversity of wealth there will be in the arts, if that makes sense. So like, I mean, if you, if you kind of, if you, if, if it seems like a, too much of an expensive prospect for you to study an arts degree and you know, you're like a working class kid, then you're not going to do it. And then all the art will become like monolithic. I don't know if that's a word, but um, it'll all become like done by people from the same socioeconomic. That's re- That really worries me. That's scary. Totally. No, absolutely. That, and that's exactly what's happening. Um, you know, another great reform from the Howard government was, giving you a, uh, getting you into a course, if you didn't get the marks to get into a certain course, but if you were rich enough to pay the fees for that course up front, 
then you could get into the course, right? Like, if, if, like, because if you have money, then that makes up for Fucking you not getting as good results as someone else. Um, that was eventually done away with, but that's a great example of it. Mm. Um, totally. I mean, like, you know, universities are elite institutions, and uh, we want to open them up more. Everybody has the right to a great, high-quality public education, a primary school, a secondary school, and a university. Um, and to their credit, since Hex. It, it it was opened up a lot more to to, to working class people. The, the amount of working class participation, the number of people going to university generally increased, and the, the number of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds started going. But it's just sort of like, well, you know, in a country like Denmark or Switzerland, they pay they they just spend substantially more public money on the university system, which makes it extremely, if not free, then pretty much free yeah. for students to attend. And that's a public good, mm-hmm. um, but we're not allowed to think like that here. And with what you were saying um, earlier about like you having a suspicion about uh, Australians being less conservative than we sort of think we are, mm-hmm. do you think that could be an example of that? Like if you, if you actually spoke to people, um, do you think most people would be like, no, it should be free or cheap university or yeah. Totally. Could've... I mean, it's still the polling you know, one, I mean, in, in my research, I'll be writing about this, but, you know, there's a, there was a poll in something like 2018, in 2018, maybe. And 45% of people thinks that public education, that university should be should be free. Yeah. Okay, now, that's more than any other response. Some, you know, fewer yeah, yeah, than yeah. That people said that it shouldn't be in someone, and more and other people said said no. So, so most people in that mm-hmm. particular poll. Now, that's after 30 years of the current system. Yeah. Um, people hate privatization consistently across the board australian public hates privatization they look at electricity um they look at the aged care sector for fuck's sake and again and again and again people say this sucks when you run these kind of crucial services for profit ordinary people get fucked over uh that's a majority opinion in australia but the political class they know better they go no 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 this is actually better for everybody. It's going to make it more efficient. Government sucks, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And no matter how many failures <laughs> privatized services result in, they just carry on and they, it can't be reversed. Fuck what most people think. And that, they'll acknowledge it. They'll be like, we know a lot of people hate this, but um, we, we know that it's the right thing to do. Um, that- but, then why do, but then why do the liberal government keep getting voted in? I know that Labor would also do a lot of privatization, but I assume that the liberal government would do more of that. Why do they keep winning elections then if, if the public don't like it? <sighs> That's a very good question. <laughs> and it's very frustrating. I mean, again, I think to my point of like, you know, how right wing is Australia, more people voted for Labor and the Greens than, than the coalition at the mm. last election. Okay, like in terms of like sheer numbers of the people who put number one in the box. Now, our electoral system sucks for a variety of different ways. And basically it does come down to a handful of marginal seats every fucking election. Um, and those, those marginal seats are basically between, between Labour and, and Liberal. Um, and, and, I mean, you, you can't uh, deny the influence of a conservative corporate media. I think that certainly helps. Yeah. Um, you know, when Rupert Murdoch gets behind you, you, you do do substantially better than, than when he doesn't. Um, I think that's a, that's the factor. Not that I want to say the media brainwashes everybody, but also, I mean, at this point, when you've had 30 years of neoliberalism and you've had the idea that government can do lots of good things for people, um, just hacked away in people's minds. If you come along with it, 
you know, bigger left agenda and you need to convince people to trust government to, to take the lead on something or that, you know, ending coal mining in Australia, it can be done while making sure that we have a just transition. Like it's a very tall order to make when people have been told that government is the problem for a very, very long time. So I think that, but then also, yeah, I don't know. The left just got to, it's got to get better. Mm. Another great survey was this ABC talks thing, which happened last year, which is this massive public opinion survey data that the ABC did with a bunch of universities. And they, they surveyed like 50,000 people which is a huge sample size. Like most news polls that we talk about all the time, that's about a thousand people. So really big sample size, lots of people that, that adequately reflect the diversity of the Australian uh, population. And like 90% of Australians hate big business. Like, like they said, 90% of Australians believe that big business will always put uh, the profit and their interests above the public interest like 90% wow. majority of labor and like coalition wow. voters, everybody. Right. But we just haven't been told that, that a left program is, is the answer to that. Or, yeah. or the fact that big business runs, everything is at the heart of a lot of our problems. I think. Yeah. That's weird. It's it's weird that it's weird that it's like this, like cognitive dissonance. It's like, you know, you know that they're bad, but still. Um, okay. I, I want to talk about comedy in a little while because I, I, I like talking about comedy. But before I... I, I, <laughs> I think keep... we've been pretty funny. Right? <laughs> it's been a pretty funny podcast. So far, far so... I've, I've felt depressed and angry. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope anyone listening has also felt that. That's the whole... That's all the emotions I've felt throughout these conversations. <laughs> depressed and angry. But just to continue with the depression... Um, yes, Actually, actually, no, no. This could be seen as hopeful. I'll, I'll phrase this in a hopeful way. With all that considered, and people already hating biz, big, big business and stuff like this, um, mm. and in your eyes, the Australian public being more uh, like progressive than than you might think they are, then as the climate gets hotter and as things start to become really fucked and affect people's lives like they did last year with the bushfires, do you mm. think that that could be um, the the thing that spurs people to be like fuck this like let's we need to change this world asap like do you do you view climate change optimistically in any way in that regard like it could be the thing that surges us into a better world or no wow um it is very hard to think that that's the direction we're coming in <laughs> um i don't know if you watched the vp debate uh but kamala harris was a pains to make it clear that her and joe biden will not ban fracking they will not be banning fracking uh, fracking is good actually um look i mean you, you know i i think i think i think things like the, the school strike for climate is very exciting. I think Greta mm. Thunberg is exciting. I think mm-hmm. the level of political engagement amongst the Zoomers when it comes to this issue, stuff like the Sunrise Movement in the US, I think all that's quite exciting. Mm-hmm. I think that <laughs> if you get a country like China fucking amping it up, like as soon as China starts becoming the renewable energy superpower, then maybe the US and Australia will start fucking yeah. shit together um, <laughs> depressingly. Um, but I mean, you know, in, in Europe, they're, they're of course ahead of us on this, on this front and doing extremely well. 
Um, maybe billionaires like that guy from Atlassian will, will convince everybody that, that Australia is <laughs> the way to go and it'll be great. But, I mean, the forces that you're up against are pretty fucking massive. And when, when you start looking into it, it's just how much mining has dominated uh, Australian politics for a very long time. Um, it's not just a recent thing, but, but you know, how powerful they are, how much they influence our politics, how divorced they are from the interests of, of the Australian people. Um, it's, it's very depressing, particularly when you would think that, you know, if it, in the immediate future, any um, addressing of this problem is going to be through a Labor government, perhaps a Labor Greens um, a minority government, and the Labor Party is still accepting donations from fossil fuel companies um, and still has Joel Fitzgibbon out there talking about how we should, should build new coal mines. So um, that is depressing and I'm sorry. And I'm trying to settle on something a little bit better. Well, I got to say um, you're, you're pushing me closer towards the idea of revolutionary socialism, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to convince me that democratic socialism was the way, but what you've just said there, I'm like, fuck it. We have to just, at a certain point when everything's starting to become on fire, we're going to have to just be like, fuck this. Like, <laughs> And I'm keen. I'll be a part of that because, like, it's it's bullshit. It's, um, I'm fed up. What are you sick of it? <laughs> yes, but, like, you know, to deal with the impacts of climate change, we're going to need a, a massive, mm. the power of the state, right? And massive coordinated national response. And we true. need resources. And we, and we have the wealth and the capacity to do that. But we just don't have a um, political class that's, that's um, on board that. I mean, I think, I think, I think the union movement will, will be crucial because, you know, mining unions, fossil fuel company uh, unions, manufacturing unions are still quite densely, uh, quite large in, in the scheme of uh, unions and yeah. quite powerful. Um, and, you know, some of them are like, yeah, a new gas would be great because that'd be good for jobs, which is a problem. But there are some sections, particularly towards the more militant end of the union movement that recognize that, First of all, the coal companies don't give a fuck about workers. They want to automate everything they possibly can. It's not like you've got this incredible secure job for life. And if you're a coal miner in Australia right now, chances are you, yeah, you'll be replaced by a robot or the demand for coal is going to tumble pretty soon. So um, if you had, yeah, you, the workers uh, at Adani or whatever, seriously fucking stuff up and making demands, then that would be, that would be cool. Yeah, I, that 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 like, do people know that that um, <laughs> I find it confusing? But how can there be so much support for the coal industry when and like, uh, do people realize that it's um, going to run out and that it's becoming more automated? And if not, like, are the Greens doing a job of showing people the fact that renewable energy will actually supply them with more longevity in terms of a job. Do the Greens do that? Is that, or I assume the Labor Party don't do that because they like coal, but is anyone doing that in politics? Like showing people that you will have a job in renewable and actually you'll have a job for longer and, and probably than you would in the coal industry. I mean, yeah, the Greens say that. How much people believe it is still up in the air. I mean, there are examples. I think 
Germany managed to shut down a coal mine and not a single job was lost. Like those transitions are happening. People realize that, that you have to have that, that there's no other way to, to do it. And that, mm. um, yeah, people need to believe and need to know that, you know, a transition doesn't mean that uh, it comes at expensive jobs or people's living standards. I mean, if you're, I don't know, if you're a 50 year old coal miner, then, you know, coal, you'll be, you've got a job till at least you retire. I, I reckon. Yeah. You know, same things, or at least you'd be worried that you didn't. Um, yeah. If someone yeah. was going to close down a coal mine pretty, pretty shortly. I yeah. think the idea of the government building a new coal mine or even private enterprise doing that anytime soon, I think that's probably not going to happen in Australia. I, I reckon that's probably done. I hope. Um, but you know, there are still issues with renewable energy that needs to make its, make its case gas is considered a transition fuel, but that doesn't mean we need to build any more um, uh, gas fired plants or, or start, you know, opening up and fucking setting every f- tap on fire uh, by fracking all over the place. You know, the frack bands that are in place are a good thing and we don't need to open up new gas exploration. Mm. Um, but fuck, I mean, it's also very boring. I mean, my, my brain when everyone says gigawatts, I just, I can't. <laughs> so, yeah. No, my brain melts. I, know, me and I don't too. Really care. Me too. And, um, but, you know, the, the idea of the Green New Deal, which is often derided by, by centrists of the right wing, is the idea that, that this is an opportunity to try and change lots of things and that it's not a cost. It is this opportunity to, to reimagine, you know, so many things about our about the way that our society runs yeah we could actually emerge we could you know address the crisis and emerge in the other side of it better i like that that's good it's good right <laughs> yeah but that's what we thought going to covid so true um hey does um with covid uh you know Naomi Klein. I assume you've probably read yeah. some of her stuff. In in um, the Shock Doctrine, her book, um, she she sort of argues that in in times of crisis and disaster, um, governments and you know I guess the powers that be will push forward policies and laws that, that and they'll push them through quickly, and they are laws that would otherwise be rejected by the public and that wouldn't get through. Um, but because it's a moment of crisis, they say we need to push this through to solve the crisis. And then what ends up happening is the law or the policy actually sticks after the crisis. Um, and then you just carry on and everyone forgets about it. And she's got lots of examples for this. Um, do you worry about that with the COVID crisis at all? Um, obviously there's been a lot of things that have changed and I'm not, I'm not fucking, I'm not saying dictator Dan or anything like that. Like I, I think, (laughs) I think the Melbourne lockdown has been really good and I'm, I'm, I think we've handled it pretty much as well as you can handle this thing. Um, but the police do have more power now than they did before COVID. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, on whether those powers will be pulled back or, or, um, yeah. Oh yeah, well, powers. I mean, yeah, I mean, Klein also talks about uh, not not just powers. You know, like um, you know, post nine eleven. Yes, you have this huge wave of of the Patriot Act in the US and yeah. the laws here, right? So, so police powers and the, mm-hmm. the industrial mil- military industrial complex and stuff, but also, you know, um, uh, actual policy 
ideas like post hurricane Katrina, uh, you just privatize everything basically. Yeah. You let companies come in here to get her. Uh, That's right. Uh, That's the big one she talks about. Yeah. 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 Get New Orleans back on its feet by, by literally handing almost every government public service over to, over to the private sector. So, um, uh, so while I am concerned about the police powers and I think the Andrews government, even before COVID had some serious problems when it comes to how much power, police power they, they relied on the, mm-hmm. you know, blind defense of Victoria police, how much they fucking love prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrews had a few comments where he pretty much dismissed any civil rights considerations. Um, and that's increased during, during COVID. That's a problem, but it's, it's stuff like, um, you know, flexibility in the workplace, right? Like the government's big, focus or one of the one of the areas that focused on to recover from from COVID was about you know just deconstructing industrial relations and and basically saying that you know everyone needs to be flexible Um, and these conditions and stuff that the union (laughs) movements won that we can we have to do away with all that because we're in a crisis now we've got to get australia back on its feet and literally they say it's a business-led recovery like they, they identified that the private sector which creates all the jobs apparently uh they have to lead the way out of the crisis that's that's the stuff that's scary yeah and what's disappointing is the amount of opportunity that's been lost um you know we could have nationalized virgin um i think the aged care sector should immediately come back into public hands um uh you know we i mean we had free childcare for a little bit and now that's gone mm-hmm. um so there's these kind of opportunities that just go away you know we're in a crisis we realize what we have to do in order to get people through um and of course, many of those solutions are good ideas for the rest of the time. It's a good idea to not let people who are unemployed live in poverty prior to the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, but suddenly when there are lots of people unemployed, we realize that that, that would be an issue. Uh, and now that things are getting better, then we can send them back to that poverty pavement. It's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's fucking bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to sigh again. <laughs> No, it's my fault. Like I, I've had this with a few guests on my podcast. Like I don't know what it is, but I think I'm, I think I'm quite pessimistic about the world at the moment. So I, yeah, I can't help but talk about like the f- most fucked aspects of it. It's yeah, it's all it's all quite bleak at the moment. <laughs> it, it is, and I and I really, I can't offer much, much else in the way of in the way of being particularly optimistic. The thing that makes me opt- optimistic about anything is reading, reading history. And when you learn more in the past about what people have done, uh, you know, particularly the, 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 the union movement in Australia has a pretty fucking cool history. There's a lot of really cool wins that working people have done when they've got organized and come together. Um, and uh, when you, look at the way that a lot of people have come together in the, in the face of this crisis, you know, all the good things that I love about Australia basically are founded in a very collectivist, Mm. um, social mindset, or they they flow from that universality, um, support for other people, helping each other out, you know, all that stuff that we're sort of trumpeted as, as Australian values. To me, that's all, um, indicative of a more left-wing progressive possible Australia. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. That, that's quite positive. Um, 
what? Why? I hope I don't bum people out because it's no, 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 no. It's you pointless. Won't. And being hopeless is pointless, right? Like, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Particularly for someone like me, my my life's fine. I'm fine. I've been extremely lucky, and I've got all these resources and nice things happening in my life. So who the fuck am I to get all depressed and be like, "There's no hope"? It's like, fuck you. You're, you're, I'm not living with the vast majority of the consequences of the problem. But, but uh, yes, I think once once you light everything up and think about it and don't see too much of a possibility to, to change then it does get a bit it does get a bit bleak i don't know yeah but also you, you become disconnected from other people like i reckon mo- most people probably are not nowhere near as depressed uh, or as angry as 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 well, as i am maybe uh, can like, i sorry to just i just want to interject i was actually talking to someone about this recently i think people are quite depressed and scared yes. about the climate the, the climate particularly yes. i think like I reckon just in the last five years or so, I've noticed a Mm. shift in that. Like just having conversations with people at bars or whatever. I just feel like Mm. everyone's pretty fucking worried. (laughs) Um, Yeah, totally. I mean, people are, yeah, and they're making calls about not having kids and stuff. mm. Um, And and for our generation, that's like a serious, that is, that is a, that is a real thing. I would encourage people to have kids if you want to have kids and you can afford to for fuck's sake. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, a lot of people sort of make that call and, and yes, no, I, th- I think you're right. It does kind of loom large, or at least it certainly did uh, at the start of 2020. So funny, like when the bushfires happened, I remember, I remember being like to someone, "This will, this isn't going to go away." You know, the, the media goes <laughs> in circles. <laughs> it's like it's a big story now, but I was like, "Yeah, it's not going to fade away, though. People will remember." <laughs> and then, and then fucking COVID. Fuck! <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, can we talk about comedy? Why did you get into stand-up comedy? I know you started when you were very young. You grew up in a country town. You asked that in a way that was like quite accusatory. <laughs> why the fuck would you choose to get into comedy? You know what it was? I think I was. I think I. I think that it's such a cliche, corny question. That I think I tried to like, um, you know, subvert that by just like asking it really quickly. Thank you. Basically, desperate for attention, wanted to be an actor. Did musical theatre and stuff when I was when I was a little kid. Did my first musical when I was eight years old, uh, and I had a role where I was. Um, I was a Blitzen in a production called Rock and Roll Santa, a dumb character. <laughs> <laughs> and I had lots of laughs. The, the, the moments throughout the show where, mm. I, where I got laughs, I found that very addictive. Kept doing theatre and wanted, wanted, just loved it. Just loved that that feeling <laughs> um, of being seen as a god. <laughs> and uh, and anyway, wanted to be an actor. That was like my goal. I was like, I'm going to be the greatest actor of my generation. And then happened to do the class clowns competition when I was 14 years old, just a high school comedy competition that mm. the comedy festival runs and ended up at the national final of that and realized that you, you know when you do comedy it's just you on stage nobody else stealing focus from you <laughs> and uh <laughs> and making people laugh like that is really really nice it makes you makes you feel nice um and then finished high school audition for acting schools didn't get into them got a job at triple j kept doing stand-up uh, have continued to do so and now i'm here yeah, interesting. When I it's a pretty inspiring story. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't know. I, there's, no, there's no great struggle or, or, or anything. I've just no, no, there. same with me. Yeah, my, my, yeah, yeah. Mine's, mine's similar. Yeah. Um, all right. This, is, this, this might be more of the struggle. When I, I reckon when I first met you, you were telling me we were talking about comedy and stuff and you were telling me that at that at that point this would have been years ago and you were mm-hmm. saying that um you were struggling a little bit it was during the Adelaide fringe you were struggling a little bit with audiences adapting because you you were just starting to do political comedy whereas before you hadn't been doing that and i think you were saying that audience didn't ex- didn't expect that from you and you were finding that adjustment hard um did you yeah do you remember that was that hard uh would that have been like 2012 i reckon yeah yeah i reckon right yes 2012 i did a show called doing stuff which was about me wanting to do things to make make the world a better place and yes was starting to do more political material I think the problem was the show wasn't very good. Um, you know, if I'd made it funnier and good, then it would have been less of a struggle for the comedy audience to appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. But certainly over the years, yes, that has been the uh, trying to figure out that process, how, how, to, how to try and be as funny as I can while saying what I believe in that doesn't seem too um, didactic. Mm. I probably definitely failed on that front quite a, quite a bit. But also I just, for whatever reason, I find that that's the um, ballpark that I enjoy doing and that I think, uh, I don't know, I have nothing else to talk about really other than my, than my correct opinions uh, that, that need to be yelled at <laughs> people who just want a nice night out and uh, managed to make that vaguely profitable. So, so yes. Did you always have that energy on stage? I don't know if that's a boring question, but you know, when you, when you perform, like when I've seen you live, you, there is a lot of yelling <laughs> and I love it. I reckon it's, that, it's so good, but like, it's good when everyone laughs, when everyone laughs that I'm yelling, it's so good. When yeah. You yell I can imagine. Bomb, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that's brutal. <laughs> I can imagine that's very, very tough. But like as a as a new comic, when you were just learning the ropes of stand-up comedy, were you yelling? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, when I started, I was very, I started sort of doing semi-one-liners or I right. wasn't really talking about my life, my personal life at all. Then my first hour show was all about me coming out and being gay. And so it was all personal storytelling stuff. Wasn't really, wasn't particularly political at all. And then over the years, just trying to put, yeah, it was all pretty much personal, soul-searching, heartbreak show, mm. blah, 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 before eventually getting to, to politics. And then only over the past couple of years, I think maybe, maybe um, show I did a couple of years ago in 2016 sort of thing. Uh, 2016, I did that refugee show and did this show called The World Keeps Happening mm-hmm. when the world did feel like it was uh, on fire and how we're all going to be. <laughs> we're all fucked yeah um oh those are the days and <laughs> um and for whatever reason i can't forget what i can't remember it might have been a gay marriage routine i think they got a routine about gay marriage that ended with a lot of yelling yelling it, it, it kind of got a lot of response because it was me being that angry about this gross thing uh was was very was particularly funny and then uh Yes, I've tried to manage it since, but sometimes <laughs> for whatever reason, it's it just it's where the jokes end up. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's great, I reckon. Um, okay, have you have you got an artist that you'd like to recommend to people? Is that okay? Sure. 
Yeah, um, it's a guy called Sam Wallman. Do you know Sam? No. Ring a bell? No. He's a uh, illustrator, an artist. Sam Wallman is his name. You've become a Patreon for him. He is uh, so great. He, he he draws a lot of stuff for left wing causes for the trade union movement. They're really funny and disturbing and disgusting cartoons a lot of the time. <laughs> and sometimes they're very moving because they're about like, he, he's one that I read or you look at his drawings and you remember that, uh, yes, people have been struggling to make things better for a very long time. Right. And uh, yeah, he's just great. He's really worth checking okay, out. Okay, cool. Awesome. Sam Warman. Um, thank you so much for talking to me, Tom. Is there anything no else you, you want to add? I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time. Have you got anything else no, to say no, about I feel like changing the world or anything? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a lot of, you got to, if, if art can change the world, you got to write like four shows next year, I reckon. <laughs>